Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks. If we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. If you were here with us last week and you decided to come back, thank you for coming back. We are going to be in another weighty topic this week. Uh, so, so last week we, we talked about hell and sin and just the cost of sin and its consequences. And this week we are talking about um, the, the topic of divorce, of remarriage, and marriage. And what we're going to find is that as we look at Mark chapter 10, the words of Jesus on this subject are more relevant than ever. Uh, We live in a world where marriage is often misunderstood, where the concept of marriage could even be ignored or um, maybe just overlooked altogether. And and here's why this is so important, Uh, not just because we need a sermon on relationships, or just because the institution of marriage is important and uh, we should fight for the sanctity of marriage. We need to talk about marriage because Jesus talks about marriage. And if we miss the true meaning of a biblical marriage, then we will misunderstand the covenant love of God for us altogether. And so as we look at Mark chapter 10, here's my aim. It is to show you that God's design for marriage reveals his covenant love toward us. That God's design for marriage points to a greater reality, that it reveals God's covenant love toward us. You see, the subject that is before us today isn't simply hypothetical. We're not going to be able to think about marriage and divorce or remarriage simply in the abstract. Because for all of us, we are affected by this topic in some way. At the very least, you need to know that at some point, someone will ask you for your advice on marriage, relationships, divorce, remarriage, and you will be held accountable for the answer that you give. Will it be what God's word says or will it just be kind of what what you've believed would be best in the moment? If you're an MC leader, a pastor or a fellow Christian, you should think deeply about your view on the subject of divorce, divorce, marriage, and and remarriage. You also need to have a biblical grasp of marriage if you're married because God designed marriage with the unique goal that it would display the gospel to the world. So people should be able to look at the way that you treat your spouse and say, that's the way that Jesus loves his church. It's an opportunity to make an appeal of the gospel as people witness your marriage and as you model this love. You also need to have a a biblical understanding of marriage because some of you are soon to be married. Many of you are engaged right now, newly engaged even, right? That's that's exciting. I mean, people are getting engaged at the Oaks all the time. Some of you guys probably have like a ring in your pocket right now, right? Who knows what could happen by the end of the day? Maybe this sermon, like wait till after communion, you know? Um, But man, we... We need to prepare for marriage. Others of you are, are single and uh, maybe you're dating someone or uh, there's someone who you, you want to date. And this is a great opportunity for you to consider uh, what God says about marriage. So hopefully I'm making my, my case for why do we need Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12? And why is this such a gift that God speaks to us about it? Others of you in the room have gone through a painful divorce. And I know painful is probably even an understatement whenever I describe it. Um, I I want to remind you of the grace of God, uh, his healing and complete forgiveness that that he gives. And even through the pain of 
divorce. Your past divorce doesn't define you. Christ does, and that gives us a ton of hope. Others of you, you're dealing with the divorce of your parents, and so you're fearful whenever you think about marriage. Uh, you're, you're thinking right now, you know, I've been so impacted by uh, the relationship of my parents or kind of the collateral damage of a divorce that I don't even know if I should think about marriage. Um, and, and what I want you to know is that even if there's been a bad example that has gone before you, that does not change the fact that God has a really good plan in marriage that he can work out in your life for his glory. You could be here today. And I don't know the story of everybody in the room, so perhaps you are considering a divorce right now. Your marriage is just extremely difficult. And for you, I hope this sermon gives you a ton of hope, that God can bring restoration. Even if you haven't talked to your spouse in in over a week, that God can bring restoration to that marriage. Maybe you're sitting here and you feel like your marriage is really good. You have a biblical view of marriage. And if that's where you're at, then may this sermon prompt you to praise God for the gift of a good marriage. And that you actually be able to leverage the gift of marriage that you have to encourage others, to come alongside others. So regardless of where you are on that spectrum, my hope is that today by looking at the concept of marriage, the mystery of marriage as Paul would call it, that we behold the covenant love of God toward us. So with that being said, let's dive into Mark chapter 10. If you have God's word, you're going to read verses 1 through 12. Verse 1, and he left there, Jesus left there in the region of Capernaum, northern Galilee, and he went to the region of Judea, he's headed toward Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. He was well known in this place, this is where he got baptized, he's done ministry here, so a huge crowd gathered, and Jesus does what he normally does, it says, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Then what happens? Verse 2. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed the man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Here in verses 1 through 5, we see the distortion of marriage. Here, Jesus, he goes into this region uh, just beyond the Jordan, and the Pharisees come up, and they begin to test him. They're not trying to learn from him. They're trying to discredit him or kind of put him in a tight spot. And so they ask him a very controversial question. They say, hey, is it okay, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And and here is what they're doing. They're trying to bring up kind of a hot topic in the day. This was not simply a religious question, but also a cultural question. Remember, whenever John the Baptist had begun preaching and teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage, uh, Herod got really upset and ultimately it led to the beheading of John the Baptist. And so this is a touchy issue. And so they're asking, is it lawful for uh, a man to divorce his wife? And what they're trying to do 
is to put Jesus in a tight spot so that he either has to kind of agree with them and then they get credibility. Or perhaps he disagrees with them and they can say, oh, he disagrees with Moses. And then they can kind of try to strip him of his credibility. And yet what does Jesus do? He answers their question with a question. Look in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Now remember, these guys were experts in the law. So quoting Moses was child's play for them. Immediately they go to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And what do they say? They said, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And so that's how they kind of paraphrase the passage. Well, in Deuteronomy 24, in verses 1 through 4, it actually says that if a man finds anything indecent, in his wife, that he's able to write a certificate of divorce and to then send her away. And, and so here's the issue. In that time period, there uh, you know, were those who translated that passage of scripture differently. So, so some people kind of used the phrase something indecent and said, there's a lot of ambiguity there, right? I mean, there's some leeway in interpretation. Just like modern times, people will take the Bible and say this is, this is what the Bible is saying. They will take a very liberal approach to the interpretation to ultimately make it say what they want it to say instead of understanding the heart of God in the text. And so there were kind of two rabbis who had two competing ideologies of the day. There was Rabbi Shammai, and he interpreted correctly that something indecent here was referring to sexual immorality, adultery. And that was the only case that this could be used. But then there was Rabbi Hillel, and he just kind of really had a broad view of something indecent, all the way to the point to where he taught those under his leadership that if your wife broke a dish that you really liked or burned your toast, then you were able to write her a certificate of divorce and divorce her, right? That is, that is not good. That's not the heart of God. And yet what we see is because of their liberal interpretation, because of their own selfishness, because of their desire – to make marriage about their own convenience and about themselves, they distorted marriage. And, and while divorce may simply be a symptom of a distorted view of marriage in the Word of God, we have countless examples of this even in our day. Some of the ways that marriage is often distorted now is, yes, through divorce that has no grounds, through adultery, extramarital sex, pornography, premarital sex, hookup culture, homosexuality, cohabitation. All of these ways, we, we see that marriage is distorted, that God's design is forsaken for our own selfish desires. But what I want you to see in this passage is that these distortions of God's design for marriage are not reasons that we should be discouraged, but in fact reasons that, that we can look to God's design in marriage as an even greater alternative to the damage we often see in the world. And so Jesus here is going to press them to understand his design for marriage all the more. In verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Uh, he is saying, look, God does not condone divorce. He's not encouraging divorce. And yet, because of your sinful, hard hearts, God told Moses to give this concession for divorce so that the damage that is done in divorce would be lessened than what it was without this command. Uh, so let me help explain that a, a little bit more. In, in this time period, if, if a husband just divorced the wife, 
um, unfairly divorced her, then her reputation would be ruined. Uh, she would not be able to be married again. Uh, she would not be viewed as, um, as someone who could be remarried in the future, to be cared for, to have a family. Uh, she would also lose the dowry that was paid um, to, to the husband so that they could begin their marriage or that was received um, by the husband so they could begin their marriage being provided for from their family. And so if she was just unlawfully divorced and there was no grounds for it, no way for it to happen, that she would be left very vulnerable. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, because of your hardness of heart, God told Moses to explain it, to give this command, this route, so that at least if she had a legal letter that she could possibly be remarried, that she could possibly restore this situation, that there would be some way that she could be restored. And it would cause a husband to think twice about choosing to marry or getting a hasty divorce. Now, ultimately, marriage was distorted because people were looking for a loophole to sin. The Pharisees desired a loophole to sin. And if you're here and you're married, then you need to know that there will be challenges in marriage. If you're going to be married one day, you need to know that there will be challenges in marriage. And yet those are opportunities for us to grow in Christ, to repent of sin, to trust in Christ. They're not opportunities for us to give up on our marriage. Uh, to put it this way, uh, imagine that you know, your, your check engine light came on and you discovered that you simply needed to change the oil in your car. You would not drive down to the car dealership, show up at the car lot, and throw somebody the keys and say, hey, I need a new one. This one isn't working. No, you would say, I need an oil change. I need to pay the cost to, to fix this. It's, it's fairly minimal compared to the cost that would be paid otherwise. I need routine maintenance and care. And Christian marriage is the same way. Yes, there will be challenges. There will be times that that your marriage needs to be repaired, that there needs to be routine maintenance on your marriage. And yet we bring our marriages to Christ as the only one who can make them whole. You see, challenges in marriage or desire for divorce or whatever it may be is simply a symptom of the greater problem, which is a hard heart. Jesus said this concession had to be given because a hardness of Heart, And that's the problem of every single one of us apart from God. That as Ezekiel says, we have a heart of stone that is rebellious toward God. And unless God removes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, unless the gospel becomes good news that we can be truly changed and have life in Christ's name, then this will only be one of the problems. This is why divorce or distorted views of marriage are prevalent in our culture, because ultimately the hardness of heart has expressed itself in a myriad of ways. And so while there are cases that divorce is permissible, Jesus is going to once again remind them of God's design for marriage. And that's what we see in verses six and following. Jesus said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And here we see the design of marriage. It's funny that whenever Jesus says, what did Moses say? They immediately go to Deuteronomy 24. And could it be perhaps that whenever Jesus was asking, what did Moses say? 
He's referring to the first pages of Scripture before sin entered into the world. What was God's design intention for marriage? And so here Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1.27, from Genesis 2.24, and saying this is God's design for marriage. A few aspects of a marriage designed by God is that it is a marriage where there is equal value in complementary roles. Equal value in complementary roles. It says that God created them male and female. God created them. They're both image bearers of God. They have equal dignity and value before God. And yet, God made them unique, male and female. They have complementary roles. They're not simply interchangeable in the institution of marriage. Second, we see that it is one man and one woman. God created them male and female. This rules out any possibility for polygamy as God's design for marriage. Uh, was that another area that we see uh, perhaps a concession being made to provide for um, people in, in the Old Testament? Perhaps we can discuss that later if you want. But God's design for marriage is one man and one woman. This also means that any time that a marriage or a union is between two people who are not of different sexes, that that is not a biblical marriage. Regardless of what is socially acceptable in our culture, a heterosexual couple is an essential characteristic of a biblical marriage. It has to be man and woman, husband and wife. And I know that that may be increasingly unpopular in our culture. But God as the author and creator of marriage is also the one, the sole one who has the right to define what marriage is. If we find ourselves redefining marriage, thus rewriting scripture, we have placed ourselves in an authority above God, which is not where we belong. Let me give you perhaps a simple analogy uh, using geometry. Not something I often do. Not a big math guy, but I'll give it my best shot. All right. Um, so I want to show you a diagram uh, that I drew on Microsoft Paint last night. <laughs> if I was to ask you to draw a square, you would be able to do that pretty simply, quickly. Because you know that the definition of a square is simple. That it is four right angles that link four sides of the same length. Oh, that's the definition of a square. But perhaps... Someone comes along and says, well, actually, my square has uh, two sides that are shorter and two sides that are longer. Well, by definition, that is not a square because an essential characteristic of a square is that four sides are the same length. Someone else comes along and says, well, you know, actually, um, I've drawn this square. It has two acute angles, two obtuse angles. And what you'd say is, no, an essential characteristic of a square, by definition, is that it has four 90-degree angles. What you have just defined is not a square. You see, God has, has written the definition of marriage between man and woman, husband and wife, one man, one woman. That is simply what it is. So to try to redefine what God has already established is to create something new altogether. And so what may remain is uh, a legally binding document or a civil contract, but it is not a marriage. We say that lovingly and honestly because, because we want people to see God's design for marriage because it is good, it is glorifying to Him, and anything outside of this union is sin, an abomination before God. 
The third thing that we see is that our marriage is to be one in which we leave and cleave to one another. Verse 7 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They were looking for a way to not hold fast to your spouse. And Jesus is saying here that you should leave and cleave, that your love for your spouse should be so great that you even place it priority above your biological or your, your family ties. Your spouse should know that they become before your parents. Uh, you should have clear boundaries, loving boundaries between you and your in-laws. I have a lot of notes here that I'm not going to go into because I think that it could kind of steer us in, in a way that maybe maybe a little bit further from the text, but the, the notes will be in the weekly this Wednesday if you want to read them. Uh, there should be clear expectations set here in which you leave and cleave. Um, also, if you are a parent, think about this. That if your child gets married one day, they will leave and cleave. So raise your child in a way in which they fear the Lord, in which they love, know the Lord, and so that you can let them leave and cleave and feel good about that. And I know that would be hard for us, and yet also exciting that this is God's plan for marriage. We also see that the two become one flesh. The two people who are once two now become one flesh. They operate as a single unit. That's what Jesus said in verse 8. The two shall become one flesh. And yet this unity is often difficult. Why? Because we are sinners. Remember, the primary relationship that was broken whenever sin entered the world is our relationship with God. We are separated with Him and ultimately Christ comes to bring reconciliation in that relationship. But the secondary effect is that our relationships with other people are broken. That's why Adam begins to blame Eve. That's why Adam just stood there blindly, like not really taking into account the authority that he had been given. That's why uh, they begin to hide themselves from one another. They went from being unashamed to down ashamed before one another. And yet even for those who have been redeemed, this sin still affects our marriage. And so we constantly bring our marriages to Christ. In fact, being married is one of the ways for particular people that God uses to sanctify you. It's one of the ways that you discover that often the problem in your marriage can be found right above the kitchen sink. If you've got a mirror right there, you look at it and you're staring at it and you're like, oh, I'm the problem here. Right? If you need to know the problem in your marriage, the first place to look is your own heart. And so here we're put in this relationship realizing that often it's difficult to live as one. And yet those places where it is difficult to be unified could be a place in which God is actually exposing idolatry in your own life. Do you often argue about finances? Well, could it be that you care more about money than your spouse? Do you often argue whenever you get the, the planner out and you're working through schedules and you're like, you didn't tell me about this and you don't talk about this for months? And it's, well, could it be that you don't consider your spouse enough and you care more about your control than the person that God has, has placed you with forever? See, the two have become one, and this is actually a great grace in our lives. And I want to get really practical here. And this may be overly practical, but I've sat across from couples enough at this point in my ministry, that these things are worth saying because if I don't say them to you for the sake of your marriage, someone else might not. So this is what it looks like for the two to become one. If you're married, you should have the same bank account. You should have an agreed upon budget. You should talk about your expenses and even having a set amount that you'd say, hey, if we spend over $50, we got to talk about it. 
because that can cause issues in your marriage. You should sleep in the same bed. You should, if at, if at possible, not let your children sleep in the same bed as you are. If they're in there now, try to get them out. Try to get them into their own room. There are a number of reasons that that is very important that I will not go into. You should go to the same church as your spouse. You should go to church with your spouse. You guys should be on the same page spiritually. You should pursue talking about spiritual matters together. You should have access completely to one another's phones. Every password that you know, your spouse should also know. You should never belittle your spouse in front of someone else. Never talk bad about your spouse to your parents, to your friends, to your coworkers. Don't do that. You should seek to catch the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. I know it's weird to end with a metaphor because you're like, the other ones I got. How are you talking about foxes? All right, well, let me explain. In the book, The Song of Solomon, King Solomon describes the marriage as a beautiful vineyard. And when the marriage is healthy, when it's flourishing, the vines are you know, growing, there are grapes that are you know, producing peace, grace, and love in a marriage. And yet he says that, that in that marriage, in that beautiful vineyard that God has created, there are small moments that can begin to threaten that vineyard. They can begin to threaten the health of that vineyard. And he wrote, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Husbands and wives, those who will one day be married, let me encourage you to catch the little foxes. Because it's normally the small things that we would brush off and just say, you know, that's not really that big of a deal. That can create the greatest danger to the health of your marriage. Pray that God would reveal the little foxes and give you the courage to hunt them down and kill them. They are little foxes, but foxes indeed. So beware of the little fox of bitterness, of ignoring spiritual matters, of allowing your kids to rule your marriage, of flirting with a friend. Or simply taking your marriage for granted. May we catch the little foxes that seek to destroy the vineyard because the two have become one. This is ultimately with the goal that we would be committed for a lifetime. The final thing that I want you to see here, God's design for marriage, is that we are committed for a lifetime. Because Jesus says in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate The wedding is a sacred moment. It's not simply a ceremony. You're making vows to one another, but before God Almighty, and they are spiritually binding. Therefore, what God has joined together, let us not separate. And maybe you hear this and you're thinking, why does marriage matter so much? Uh, this, this sounds like something that, you know, maybe should just kind of be good advice at like a relational seminar. But what I want you to see yet again, even flowing from that passage that Katie read, is that marriage matters because it points us to a greater reality. It points us to the fact that God has this kind of covenant love toward us. And marriage is one of the uniquely designed places in which God has chosen to reveal that kind of covenant love in which the two become one. Covenant love is unique because it is based upon the character of the lover not the worthiness of the one who is loved. Therefore, whenever we look at unconditional love within the context of marriage, the covenant love actually flows from vows that are made, not simply a feeling that you have. What we see is that God's commitment to us 
is an act of covenant love. Therefore, whenever Paul talks about marriage, he says that it is a great mystery that points beyond itself in Ephesians 5.32. He says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This means that marriage matters for every person. The widowed, the single, the divorced, the married, the remarried. That marriage matters for you. Because it is meant to display that whenever you are unfit for the love of God, far from God and completely rebellious, undeserving of his affection, he sought you out, set his affections on you and laid down his own life to save you, to make you his bride. That is covenant love that we will spend the rest of eternity trying to grasp the depths of. And as, as you think about this, you think about Christ, like, man, I'm supposed to love like Christ loves. Maybe you feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of that. I've been thinking through this all week long. And here's how I want to encourage you. You will never be the perfect spouse, but we have hope in the one who is. You will never be the perfect spouse, and yet you are completely approved by God, covered by his grace, atoned with the blood of Christ, because he is the perfect spouse. And that is The Holy Spirit-empowered fact that you are indwelled now by the Holy Spirit actually enables you to be the spouse that God has called you to be. That's amazing. See, the words of Jesus, they give us a lot to think about when it comes to marriage. Perhaps you still have some questions after what we talked about. And guess what? You're in a good place because the disciples did too. So there, Jesus confronts the Pharisees. They go back to the house, and then we read this, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, Jesus here is explaining that if, if you divorce your, your spouse um, and, and there is, you know, you're, you're divorcing your spouse, then to remarry after that would be to commit adultery. Okay, now remember, here he is addressing the Pharisees and their concept that you could just kind of divorce your spouse over anything, trivial and small. And so he is confronting that. So he, he doesn't give any exception clause here, and he just says, look, if you divorce your spouse, you kind of, you know, there's no reason, then there's no biblical reason, then to remarry again is to commit adultery. Now, if we simply stayed in Mark 10, there could be some unanswered questions. And so now we're going to bounce around. Uh, scripture a little bit to try to answer some questions that you have. And I'm going to try to be really quick here. A lot of things I won't be able to say. So if you have more questions, that's the reason that we, we have uh, seven elders here. We're, we're glad to answer questions. The reason missional communities exist. We're better together, right? So answer these questions among one another with an open Bible. Um, and also seek out good resources on these things. But perhaps you're sitting here wondering, okay, if there are biblical grounds for divorce, what are they? Well, there are only two biblical grounds for divorce in the way that, that I see the Bible teaching this. And it would be adultery and abandonment. So whenever Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He uses the word there, sexual immorality, also translated as porneia, to say that there is uh, an opportunity in which 
divorce would be biblical and it would be if sexual immorality or adultery has been committed. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15 gives abandonment or desertion as a biblical ground for divorce. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, if they leave you, they desert you, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so there are cases that, that a person leaves. There are cases in which a person may stay, but they are emotionally deserted. And look, that's a really sensitive kind of thing to figure out. And so um, this should never be kind of the conversation where it's like, oh, we checked one of the boxes of one of the things and now we're done. No, this should be something that is, is sought with Christian counsel in which your personal sin is going to be addressed as well as the desire to restore your marriage, even if these sins have taken place, which maybe you're wondering, okay, is divorce ever required by Scripture? And simply no, it is never required. It's never encouraged. Reconciliation is always the goal, and God's desire is always that marriage would be for a lifetime. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, sometimes a period of separation can be okay and helpful, but restoring the marriage is always the goal. Maybe you're wondering, okay, well, when is remarriage honoring the Lord? And when is it it adultery, as Jesus says here in Mark 10? Well, remarriage is not a sin if your spouse has died. So Romans 7.3 says that you're no longer bound by that covenant if your spouse dies, and so you can get remarried. And now, um, I also think that there are other opportunities that you can get remarried and uh, that it's biblical. Now, this isn't the view of everyone. It's kind of the traditional view accepted through church history, but I also really appreciate and respect some people who disagree. But I believe that it is possible and permissible to be remarried if your biblical grounds for divorce was permissible. So in Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, there is that exception clause there, right? That everyone who divorces his wife except for, in the case of sexual immorality, and marries another, that they commit adultery. And I believe that that exception clause, whenever he says except for the case of sexual immorality, not only modifies divorce, but also modifies being remarried. And so if you're biblical, marriage was dissolved in a biblical divorce, then you can also get biblically remarried and for that marriage to honor the Lord. In the same way, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7, he said, if the unbelieving partner separates, looking at this passage again, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. You're not enslaved. You're no longer bound to that covenant commitment. But if your partner leaves and deserts you, and that was a biblical divorce, then you can also be biblically remarried. Now, let me, let me tell you, just because remarriage is possible doesn't always mean that it's wise or the best thing for you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that you should remain as you are, and yet if you desire marriage and you can honor the Lord in that marriage, then get married. Maybe you're wondering, okay, well, what should I do if I've been improperly divorced? So I've been divorced before, and you know the way that I was divorced, the reason that I was divorced was not one of the two things that you said Scripture Um, gives as kind of a biblical reason for divorce. Well, I would simply say, do what you do whenever you have sinned in any other way. Repent of that sin. Know that God is gracious. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Make amends to those that you have sinned against. If you were formerly divorced in a sinful way, but now you are married and you have a great marriage, then commit that marriage to the Lord. Repent of past sins. 
ask for forgiveness, and yet now use the marriage that God has given you to glorify him. Maybe you're wondering, okay, well, if I'm married right now to a person that isn't a Christian, should I stay married to them? And I would say yes. Why? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 14, If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. What you see from context there is that by having a spouse who is not a believer, even though that is not God's design for marriage, that you would marry someone who is not a follower of Christ, that in that marriage you have an opportunity, a a unique opportunity to express the gospel to them. And it could be that they trust Christ and become holy through that relationship. Another question. Since marriage is so serious, how do I know who to marry well, first, like I just said, I would say that you should marry someone who is following Christ. You should treat them as a brother or sister in Christ. So, you know, if you think, hey, there could be something here deeper than a friendship, then I would say pursue friendship. Get to know them as a brother of Christ. Ask them out to coffee a few times. And if nothing comes of it, that's okay. right? You treated them as a brother or a sister, someone that you care genuinely about. You don't put too much pressure on it. And yet, if you're thinking, okay, who should I even consider in this way? I often use Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 to think about this. But because here, uh, the author of Hebrews says, Set aside every weight and every sin that clings to you and run the race that is set before you. So as you are running the race that God has set before you and you begin to look at those alongside you who are running that same race, think, hmm, I wonder if they'd like to grab coffee. I wonder if I could grab dinner, if we could go to lunch, if we could have a conversation maybe after the gathering. Now, here is one more way that I want to caution you against uh, dating, marrying someone who is not a believer. Think about the roles of husband and wife, just as we read in Ephesians 5. Right? The wife is to submit to the husband. And God has designed that to be a great joy, a very secure and loving relationship for the wife to enter into. But imagine if you marry an ungodly man who's been given that leadership and yet will abdicate it with laziness or abuse his authority as a husband. That's not a good relationship for you. That is a harmful relationship to you. So you want to marry a godly man. Think about it. As a husband, you will be held accountable for the way that you lead your family. You will stand before God as the head of your home. Do you want to begin that legacy by making a decision that completely flies in the face of God? And by joining yourself with someone who you hope to love for a lifetime who doesn't understand the unconditional love of God and the grace that he gives. You wouldn't want to do that. And so I want to encourage you as you're considering a spouse and to consider someone who loves and knows Jesus. Maybe you find yourself a single right now. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Or maybe you feel like you've been given the gift of singleness. And simply what I would say is that both singleness and marriage is a gift. And it is given by God to steward well. 1 Corinthians 7 says that it is a gift. Jesus was single. And so if you're single, recognize that you have unique opportunities to use your life for the kingdom right now that you will not have in marriage. And one day you will be married perhaps. And you will have different circumstances in which you can use your marriage to display the gospel then. But use the gift that you have and the season that you're in and trust God with whatever the future might hold. Both to those who are married and those who are currently single, let me say this. Don't expect your future spouse or your current spouse to give you what only God can. I think sometimes we become frustrated in our current marriages or 
Perhaps we long for marriage because what we actually want is approval and security. But Jesus invites us to ultimately find those things in him, not our spouse or not a future spouse. So may your longing in singleness or your unmet expectations in marriage ultimately prove the sufficiency of Christ in your life. Eighth, and finally, why shouldn't you give up on your difficult marriage? Uh, Because as 1 Peter 3 says, that, that as the wife adorns herself with the word of God, that she is she is made even more beautiful. And in that way, the husband is encouraged to love the Lord more. That as the husband seeks to live in his wife, as 1 Peter 3 says, live with his wife in an understanding way, that he actually expresses the love of Christ and that she is grown. That his prayers are not hindered, but actually his prayers are heard by God. You see, these things matter because the ultimate goal of your marriage is not to be the match made in heaven, but to be a match that is made for heaven. That God has created marriage in the unique way that it would be a tool in your sanctification. That you, you alone if you're married, are, are given to your spouse to prepare them to stand before Christ one day and to see him face to face. And so as you reveal one another's sin, as you pray with one another, as you grow together, as you encourage one another on the days that you are discouraged, you are preparing your spouse for eternity. And so yes, marriage will be difficult at times, and yet it is a great joy to be given this gift for God's glory. Because the love that we give is ultimately given to us first by Christ. I want to end finally with the destination of marriage. What is this all leading to? Well, as you look at scripture, you will see that the Bible begins with a marriage in the garden. And it will end with a marriage. That Jesus, our Messiah, will come. And that he is repeatedly referred to as a groom. And the church is his bride. And again and again, we have proven ourselves unworthy of his love. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel rebelling as a wife that is constantly committing adultery. And yet God woos and pursues. But we ourselves have given God endless reasons to not love us. And yet Christ continues to set his affection upon us like a groom loves his bride. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ pursues his church even in our sin. He sees us in our sinful imperfection and, in fact, gives his own perfect life on the cross that we would be washed free of our impurity and robed in robes of righteousness, gleaming and white. And one day, as the book of Revelation describes, the doors will burst open. Christ will see his bride and we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, all of this began with a question given by hard-hearted Pharisees who, who are calloused in their view of marriage. And yet, marriage matters because it reveals the tender heart of Christ toward us. That even in our straying, even in our wondering, even in our impurity and immorality, even in committing spiritual adultery against him, he seeks us out to save us. The heart of Christ is tender toward you. And so we look forward to the day in which Revelation describes the final marriage in which Christ, our groom, comes to the church ourselves. John says it like this. is almost this save the date that we're still looking forward to. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. As we take communion together this morning, it is almost a foretaste of that marriage supper of the Lamb. That as we hold the bread, we are reminded of the broken body of Christ shed for us that we may have life in his name. That as we hold that cup, we are reminded of the shed blood of our great groom to give us life. And we wait with longing expectation, knowing that he will return again. We will be united with him. The two will become one in Christ. And then all forever and eternity will be changed. Let's pray.